Welcome to yet another episode. I just want to, I say yet another every time that I am the host of a podcast. I just want everybody to understand that. It's not, it's not something that I plan to say. It just, it comes off my brain, but welcome to yet another podcast, uh, the Rodeo in the Heart podcast. I am here with my just lovely, wonderful co-host, Ryan. Ryan, how are you doing today? You know, yet another time, Donnie, I'm excited to be here chatting about sports. I mean, it's it's summer right now. We just finished up, obviously, the Stanley Cup Finals and the NBA Finals. So, you know, maybe things slow a little bit, but we still got some juice going on right now. Obviously, baseball is going on, but mostly got some offseason news in the NFL and NHL. They get through today. So I'm excited. I'm doing really well. Let's get into it, man. All right. I think we can just hop right into the sport that I think is probably the most, um, you know, intriguing to us as major hockey fans, the NHL. It has been the weirdest, most quick turnaround from season, end of season talk to, um, you know, obviously the schedule was announced today, which is wild because the Stanley Cup was last week. Um, so we're, we're really rolling here. Um, we've already seen a couple uh, interesting moves. I think the first one we can start with was uh, the only first round pick that's been traded so far since the season has ended um, from the Los Angeles Kings trading Brock Faber, who is a, a high level prospect out of Minnesota and the 19th overall pick to Minnesota for Kevin Fiala, who's coming off very clearly his best year as a pro, not even close. Um, a very interesting trade, a, a team that, you know, obviously we'll start off with the wild, the wild are dealing with significant issues. We talked about many a times here. Uh, they have many millions of dollars in, in buyouts of two players who are currently playing on other NHL teams not very well, I'll add, but they are playing on other NHL teams in Zach Parise and Ryan Suter. So Ryan or Kevin Fiala, you know, he hits restricted free agency. There's not a whole lot of flexibility for them. The Wild are really struggling to be able to put a team together. Um, so 85 points in 82 games, heads to Los Angeles. Ryan, we'll start off here. What do you think, first off, like from the Kings perspective, it's like a, I can't lose for a team that's trying to get better, right? Yeah, I really like the ad of Fiala for the Kings. Like, obviously, last year, they had, like, a really nice young core. They're still bringing up some of their young prospects. You know, they get that first kind of playoff experience with this group that they have. When you look at some of the young guys on their team, like Byfield, still just 19 years old. Arthur Kaliev, just 21 years old. Kupari, 22. Like, they have a lot of these really young players that they've been bringing up. Sean Dersey is another one of my favorite guys on the Kings on the back end, just 23 years old. So, for them to get a guy like Kevin Fiala, 25 years old, established NHL, player you know former first round pick himself and he's already you know signed long term under contract you know certainly not a cheap cap hit at 7.8 million for you know the foreseeable future he's locked up for at least like six years so he'll be a long-term king for sure I think that'll give them an immediate kind of jolt and, and juice that would help them a lot more in kind of the immediate future than obviously you know another first round pick at pick 19 would do so I think that's actually pretty good uh you know for the king side of things to, to add Fiala you know give them that you know, kind of more immediate presence that they were able to add. So from a, from a Kings perspective, I thought that move made a lot of sense and thought from Fiala's standpoint, that was about as good of a landing spot as he could probably hope for. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that. It is interesting because oftentimes players who are traded uh, as RFAs do not have this type of, you know, the value from a trade market is not going to be there, but obviously Kevin Fiala, he's just 25. He just he took a massive contract to stick with the sign with the Kings. I, I believe if I'm not mistaken, he's making $55 million over seven years, which is 
really significant money when you consider the NHL's uh, cap not really moving a whole lot the last couple of years with COVID and everything. Um, it's interesting from a wild perspective as well, because we've mentioned it time and time again on this podcast. They are um, uh, a middling franchise who has some good years here and there, I would say, uh, but they are very clearly cleaning up on mistakes that were made uh, over the last, what I would say, decade or so has built up to put them in this position. Obviously, uh, it's hard when you have to decide on buying out guys that have been with your franchise forever. Both Parise and Suter were there for a long time. But now the Wild are going into, uh, I would say, is pretty much uncharted territory in terms of an NHL franchise trying to contend, I guess is the correct word, uh, with a, such a significant portion of their cap, 15, 16% of their cap tied up in buyouts for the next couple of years. Do you feel like the Wild are kind of just like taking whatever they can get here? Obviously, the return is nice. You're getting a guy that's that they know very well, given the uh, geographic location connection and everything, plus a 19th pick. But um, what do you expect the Wild to be able to do with the such a little cap flexibility that they've been given? Plus, you know, losing Kevin Fial is not easy to replace. Yeah, they were kind of in a tough spot. Their GM's Bill Guerin, and he kind of realized the situation like, man, it would be tough to keep Fiala. As you mentioned it, you know, this year they have just under 13 million locked up between Parise and Suter, who, as you said earlier, not on their team. They're against them. And even over the next, you know, three years, the, the two years following this year, where it's just under 13 million, it's just under 15 million. So like you said, a huge significant portion of your cap is for guys that are, you know, playing against you. So they're kind of put themselves in a tough spot to, you know, keep some of the their, you know, top end players. So I think acquiring a first round pick made a lot of sense in this situation. You know, they're able to hold on to their own first round pick this year as well, since they weren't able to meet that condition with Marc-Andre Fleury's trade when they acquired him from the Blackhawks. So they lose their second round pick, but they still have two picks in the first round this year. And maybe this is kind of the sign for the wild that they still have some kind of immediate, you know, NHL talent, of course, when you look at a guy like Kirill Kaprizov and Jared Spurgeon on the back end has been pretty solid for him for a number of years at this point, but I think they're kind of shifting. Okay. Maybe we're not necessarily rebuilding, but if we can start to stack up a couple more of these early draft picks, maybe we can see kind of a change in future in the next, you know, five, six, seven years, if they're able to bring those guys up and develop them. So I think they were just kind of in a tough spot. They realized they kind of just had to bite the bullet a little bit with the Suter and Parise buyouts. So maybe this is their way to kind of stimulate, not necessarily a rebuild, but a little bit of a retool and acquiring some young talent they can develop from, from a while standpoint. Yeah, and there were also rumors, um, you know, obviously uh, pretty much every wild beat writer has been saying, yeah, you know, we're sitting here. Matt Dumba's probably gone too. Unfortunately, he's expiring six mil. They're not going to be able to keep him. So he's probably going to be gone by the trade deadline. It's been the rumor here. Um, it's interesting. And I think the wild are going to be a, a standard to look at for the next couple of years um, for other teams that will be dealing with similar issues because even with the Rangers as a good example, the Rangers had Dan Girardi and Mark Stahl who were on massive, massive contracts and did absolutely nothing to help the team for the most, most part at the end of their deals. So it's going to be really interesting to see if the wild can like break out and, and contend. I find it hard to believe that a team with $13 million tied up in players that aren't playing on their roster, probably going to struggle to make the playoffs regardless of what they do. And then we're talking about like Matt Boldy is up for a contract next year. If Matt Boldy plays anywhere near how well he did this year in, in little time, the wild cap issue is going to be so crazy. We're going to see them get rid of so many guys. It's going to be super, super bizarre. Realistically, just before we move on here, 
can you make the playoffs if you have 13 to 15 million dollars tied up in buyouts like we're talking about an 80 million dollar cap here like we're not it's that's not crazy like yeah i i think it's possible to make the playoffs but i don't think it's possible to make a significant run especially for a team like the wild who hasn't done that even when they haven't had this you know significant crutch of massive cap hit against so i i mean you mentioned boldy uh you know he's a restricted free agent at the end of next year just 21 years old uh at the moment right now but even a guy like matt dumba on their back end he's a free agent at the end of next year as well so you wonder man it's going to be tough maybe to keep some of these defensemen that they've had um and most notably dumba um you know given that tough situation with their cap hit so we'll see you know would they wild even kind of be some crazy uh team to keep an eye on during the nhl draft this week would they be willing to trade away a guy like matt dumba with a year left on his contract if they are saying okay you know it's probably unlikely we make a deep playoff run do we continue to just kind of go through this rebuild process and and stimulate our team to have some more success acquiring future assets in the next couple years so they're definitely a team i'm keeping my eye on but i really think it's going to be tough for them to you know make any sort of significant run playoffs i think is possible but anything further than you know the second round i think would be a really big stretch when you have you know uh, like you said like 15 percent of your cap in you know dead space from from guys you previously bought out i tend to agree i think you did just uh, as perfect of a job explaining that as possible it's going to be really interesting especially considering you are a chicago blackhawks fan you are hoping to you know figure out the team at some point you hope the Blackhawks will be good the next couple of years and you would think the wild are direct competitors to the Blackhawks within those next couple of years so I think that if you're a Blackhawks fan or a fan of a team in the division or even the Western Conference is sitting there like yeah like this this is good for me I'm happy about this because realistically if the wild had 15 million dollars of flexibility like we're talking about a team that could maybe have won the Stanley Cup if they you know 13 million dollars that's that's adding a Johnny Gaudreau type player to your roster like we're, we're not talking about fiddlesticks here so yeah. I think that's a very interesting thing to look at too, just in general, like it's a Western conference team. That's going to, they're going to struggle. We know they're going to struggle. It's just how it's going to be with the cap. Yeah. And like, I think I also kind of look at it as like, we've seen teams kind of finesse or finagle the cap a little bit. Tampa most notably with long-term injured reserve, like teams have guys that, you know, maybe they're not clearly playing their best hockey anymore, but they can kind of finesse their way out of getting out of LTIR. Not the case with Suter and Parise. They were still looking to play hockey, not necessarily injured. It's just their level of play had dropped a little bit. So those are straight up dead cap. There's no way to get around that. There's no way to use that to inflate your the best, the rest of your team, the rest of your roster. You know, when you get to the playoffs, you're like, all right, here we go. We can use all this money that we had put away from LTIR certainly not the case for the wild so they're in really kind of a tough spot as I said but I think if they do go with that kind of proactive approach if they do decide hey we could trade away a guy like Matt Dumba even with a modified no trade clause hey maybe we look to make some uh, more out of uh, you know some of these future assets so that once those contracts go off the caps which won't be until uh, at the end of 2025 which is crazy how far away that seems now but if some of those guys they're drafting now if those are starting to come up you throw some entry-level contracts on your on your cap it now you can be a little bit more aggressive in free agency so long ways away i think the wild are looking at like a seven-year plan which almost seems crazy to think about but just the next three years are going to be really tough with those big dead cap against the books fair i think we can shift it over to a team that is also uh you know an interesting situation with the san jose sharks first off um gm doug wilson stepped down after 20 years 19 20 years with the team which is crazy to think about given the fact that uh, a lot of members of the NHL both you know front office and coaching staff they have seven or eight jobs over 20 years usually but um, so the Sharks obviously Doug Wilson stepped down because of health issues and then after every other job had filled other than the Winnipeg job uh, Bob Bugner was 
you know, let go of his job three losing seasons. You don't expect to be able to hold on to coaching a team there. And then the Sharks decided, hey, we're going to go off the board a little bit. We're going to go away from the, the usual generic candidates that are recycled in our sport as we talk about coaching candidates are pretty much the same as front office candidates. I feel like these guys always end up in positions. Uh, however, they decided to go off the board and hire a guy that has not had any GM experience, but has had a lot of experience working in the front office for both the Rangers and the Blackhawks, uh, worked at a bench boss or behind the bench boss in New Jersey as an assistant coach, mm-hmm. a thousand NHL games and Mike Greer, making him the first black GM in NHL history, which is absolutely insane to talk about, given the fact that the NHL has been around for a very long time. It's got a history of having players of all uh, origins, cultures, backgrounds, yet 2022, we're talking about uh, the big news of this week in the NHL is the first black GM in the history of the sport. So first off, like before we get on, get into any of the, the technical talk, you know, it's a momentous occasion, regardless of what happens, right? Like this is, this is a major step forward because it finally, it, it's a, it's a barrier breaker, I would say. Yeah, no doubt. Like you said, it's crazy that this is, you know, the first time something like this has happened, but awesome for Mike Greer, good for the Sharks to, you know, kind of make this move. You know, Doug Wilson was their guy for a long time and they even had, you know, a good amount of success. You know, they made the Stanley Cup final in a, you know, legitimate year. It wasn't like a COVID year or anything. Like they definitely built a, a solid team and they had guys like Marlowe and Thornton, uh, you know, they, they had some, uh, some solid teams that Wilson was able to build, but kind of in an interesting transition now. So Mike Greer is going to take over kind of an interesting roster situation where they they do have a lot of their team that's going to be coming off the books in the next two years, but they still have kind of those core guys that they already had extended guys like Thomas Hurdle, Logan Couture, Eric Carlson, Brent Burns, Mark Edward Vlasic, you know, two centers, three defensemen, you know, a lot of times when you're looking at building your team, you're looking to fill those spots and all those guys are locked up until at least 2025, at least three more years for all of them. A guy like Thomas Hurdle just signed his extension. So he'll be around a really long time. You have a guy like Timo Meyer who will be a free agent at the end of next year. I imagine they'll look to lock him up long-term. He's been an outstanding, definitely a really big bright spot at just 25 years old for the Sharks. So Mike Greer, he's, he's definitely got his hands full a little bit. You know, there, there's a lot of things that they need to do to turn over that roster. I thought their forward core last year was really lacking, which says a lot given that I think those three players with Herta Couture and Meyer are all really solid, but they've got a lot of work to do in, in overhauling that roster. But I think it's really good for, uh, for Mike Greer. Awesome to see, you know, uh, more diverse background people, you know, uh, obviously with Mike Greer, here getting the role so hopefully a sign of more things to come but uh and at least in terms of a shark's perspective he's kind of in an interesting spot with uh you know a little bit of flexibility but also some of those kind of key fundamental spots with your top two centers and top three defensemen locked up for you know at least three years yeah and usually i feel like so just from san jose standpoint in general you would be thinking oh like this is a team that's ready for a retool rebuild uh need to take a couple years step back um maybe try to move some assets but like First off, nobody's taking Eric Carlson. That's like a guarantee. Nobody's yeah. taking Brent Burns, probably three years left. He's making eight mil a year. I, I find it hard to believe that somebody would pony up the assets for a 37 year old who probably has seen his best days. And then Mark Edward Vlasic, four years, he's not going anywhere. He's not uh, up to par compared to where he was in the past. So for a first time GM who does not have any real experience in terms of moving around NHL players. It's going to be a battle for him. He is, he is, it's a bad situation. It's not a fun situation. It's not one of the, the situations I would want to be in if I was an aspiring GM, especially given the fact that, you know, uh, there's no coach. Every, every other coaching position has already filled other than 
I think it's every one at this point, other than the sharks. So now you're picking from maybe the scrap peat bottom of the barrel. Maybe you're going off the board and, and getting somebody you've coached with in the past or something like that. Uh, I've heard rumors of like Chris Nava, who's uh, from the Rangers, for example, which would be interesting. I do not envy him in the slightest. I think it is almost uh, maybe the hardest job for, for any brand new GM to get out of in terms of the open GM spots that we've had over the last couple of years, even. I, it's worse than the Blackhawks by far. It's worse than, I don't know. I, I'd like to say it's not as bad as, you know, Minnesota's, but at least Minnesota's got like the talent to build off of. San Jose doesn't have a whole lot of like really like young, talented pieces. It's going to be brutal to see him try to work out of this. And I would say this about any GM in the league, like no doubt. Yeah. I, I just think like the structure of how it is, is so odd. Like they're, in between like their old core and also like getting their new core. Cause we mentioned like they have all those guys locked up, you know, I do like some of the young pieces they have, uh, especially for some forward prospects. Like I love William Eklund. He was one of my favorite players in the draft last year. Like he played his nine games this year, went back to Sweden. Like, I think he's going to be a stud. He's got a ton of skill. Like he was on a line with, you know, Logan Couture or Thomas Hurdle. He's going to produce like he, William Eklund's going to be really, really good for them for a long time. I like Thomas Bortolo a lot as well. You know, he played college at uh, Michigan, you know, really good program and Bortolo's got a lot of offensive skill also played for the U.S. development team program and Danilo Gunshin is, is kind of the last prospect that I really like he played in the USHL for Muskegon and he had a lot of skill and has a lot of potential so I think they have some you know some prospects that there are guys to like especially William Eklund like he could be a legitimate like cornerstone piece for the Sharks in terms of you know them you know looking to use him for the future like they didn't burn his first year of his ELC last year since he got sent back to Sweden so I think Eklund's kind of the guy to me where it's like all right you know if we can you know you know muster up something we, we at least have some guys that are coming but I mean they're they're just kind of in a in a weird in-between spot where it's going to be challenging do they opt to go for a buyout where they got to bite this significant cap it do they just kind of struggle through it do they find a way to you know tell someone to be injured and go on LTIR so they're they're kind of in an interesting spot they're definitely a team to watch so Mike is going to have his hands full but you know from an overall league standpoint definitely a big win for the NHL to see him hired and uh, you know getting that crazy distinction that he's the first African-American GM in the history of the league yeah and just to add to it like he's played a thousand sixty games in the NHL yeah. and he's coached and he's been in the front office like if there's anybody with experience in, in multiple uh, facets of the game like it's a good guy to have in your organization period especially a former shark which was an interesting distinction that they came out with beforehand saying yeah we'd like to hire somebody that has worked in the organization or played for us before which is a really interesting like prerequisite for a, a general manager's job I feel like but the Sharks are going to shark. We'll see how this works. I am pulling for him. You know, obviously he was on the Rangers staff. Um, hey, the Rangers did pretty well this year. If he had any type of contribution, which I'm, I'm sure he did, Chris Drury said that he loved having him around. I can't argue with that. And hopefully Sharks fans are a little bit happy to see, you know, a guy stays with your, your franchise 19 years as your GM. Like it's time. It's time to do something, right? Yeah, I mean, we got to tell that to David Poyle in Nashville, too. I, guess. I don't care how good you are. It's time. Like, the sport is so different 20 years ago to now. this It's a completely different sport. So, you know, I, I don't envy him at all. Um, I guess, you know, but the main attraction here, the big news. I mean, the NHL draft is tomorrow. And you have been all over the NHL draft. You have been full-time scouting mode. Maybe not as hard as you scout the NFL draft, given you know, I, I've seen this guy's spreadsheets. It's just bonkers. It's <laughs> ridiculous. However, um, 
anything exciting to you? Obviously, the top of the draft is really, really bizarre because we have the Montreal Canadiens, the number one pick, saying, yeah, we, we like that guy. We like this guy. We like that guy. We might pick that guy. We might trade the pick. We might not trade the pick. The, the pick might not be made. We don't know. Um, obviously, giving off the, the generic um, 17 different thoughts and opinions from the organization to try to throw everybody off the scent. It's going to be a really interesting uh couple maybe like first three four picks i think we could see some really uh, maybe not off the board because the top five six seven guys seem to be pretty much uh stacked up in terms of talent but we could see a really bizarre draft that totally throws it through a loop yeah i agree i i mean scouting nhl is definitely a lot different than scouting nfl we don't have as much like positional value and whatnot obviously like a center is more important than a winger for example but you know you're just looking to kind of get the most skilled player and i think for me like when i do my hockey scouting like I'm kind of looking for those specific players that have a ton of skill. They've got a really good ability to make the play with the puck on their stick. They can create for their opponents, you know, really good skaters more so than players that are, you know, necessarily like as physical or project a little bit better that way. But I think like top of the draft, you look at a guy like Uri Slavkovsky and he gives you all of the above, you know, he's got the size, he's got the skill and the ability he produced in, you know, professional leagues, uh, you know, this season in Finland, he produced during the Olympics, he produced during, you know, all the world juniors that he was participating in anywhere. Slavkovsky world champion championships anywhere Slavkovsky went he was produced and he was like an impact player which says a lot for someone his age so to me he's ready to step into the NHL right away but I mean even throughout like the rest of this draft I think it is pretty deep like there's definitely a lot to like I mean I watch a lot of the U.S. national team development program and I feel like they have some defensemen that may be kind of going under the radar a little bit like Ryan Chesley is one example of a player that you know maybe doesn't necessarily have kind of as offensive firepower as as some other guys in this draft but I think he's just like an all-around solid defenseman like he's, he's someone that you can probably project as a second pair guy going to the next level. So I think there's a lot to like with him. Lane Hudson for me is probably the most intriguing prospect in this draft overall. Also played for the development team program and his offensive instincts are just incredible. He's always jumping up into the offensive offensive zone. Like sometimes he has shifts where he looks like Kale McCarr just flying around, you know, skating below the goal line, creating a play out front. You know, he's got a nice shot, really good playmaker. But the thing with him is that he's a little bit undersized. So we've seen historically in the NHL, some of those guys tend to fall a little bit but I think someone's going to get an absolute steal with Hudson. So I'm interested to see if he will squeak into the back end of round one, or maybe he falls into early day two uh, in that second round. So those are some of the uh, intriguing defensemen for me, uh, both to us national team development program guys. But I mean, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of talent in this draft. I think this is one of the deeper drafts uh, we've had in the last couple of years for the NHL, at least in terms of like the legitimate quality first round pick guys, like the NHL draft historically, you're not finding, you know, real big impact guys in the fifth, sixth, seventh round, like you would say, in the NFL or uh, a sport like that. So I think you really can identify where's the skill, where's the talent at the top of the draft. And I think this draft has a ton of it. So I'm really excited to see how it all plays out. At the top of the draft, we've obviously seen Montreal, as I mentioned, uh, a lot of questions. New Jersey at number two, probably sitting there happy with whatever they end up with between uh, Slavkovsky, Wright and Navy, Cooley or, or Nemec or one of those other guys. If you had the number one pick, if you're the Montreal Canadiens, are you going with right or are you going off the board a little bit? Somebody else, obviously, it's been a, a, extremely bizarre, maybe an over analysis of prospects at this point, as happens in every draft ever. Number one, who you got? 
Yeah, I, I would still go with Shane Wright, first of all, if I was the Montreal Canadiens and, and making that pick. I think Slavkovsky, like, yeah, I mean, there, there's nothing against Slavkovsky. Like, I think him being in consideration for round one just shows how much he really got better this year, how much he was consistently producing at whatever competition level he was playing. Like, he's pro-ready. He's going to jump into the NHL, and I think he's going to be a, a good producer right away. But for me, I still think Shane Wright projects as the guy that I would go first overall, you know, a legitimate center produced a ton this year he played for Kingston in the OHL put up 94 points in, in 63 games like I think that the production backs up what you see with the player uh, you know he, he was really good when he played for Team Canada in, in U18s two years ago I uh, didn't play this year for the for Team Canada but um, did two years ago and, and was really effective in, in that tournament in Dallas but I think there's a lot to like with Shane Wright overall I, I think if I'm Montreal they've got you know so many holes even though they just made the cup final two years ago last year was just such a disaster never hurts to take the center you know that that positional value is, is definitely legitimate uh when it is a competition of guys that are pretty equally uh valued at least that's how i have it with uh slavkovsky and right i think those are definitely the top two players in the draft overall but i would go with right first overall if i was making the pick for montreal final question as a chicago blackhawks fan alex debrinkat has been in the news consistently whether it's uh, the number five pick Philly, where, you know, that doesn't seem to be the the go-to at this point, uh, or others, even the Devils at number two. We've heard a little bit about like Ottawa at seven, maybe. Do you think Alex DeBrincat ends up getting traded? And if he does get traded, are you going to be very upset regardless of the response, regardless of their turn? Because I feel like, you know, as a Blackhawks fan, I would be very upset if they just moved like what seems to be the cornerstone of the future. Yeah, I think trading to Brinkett would be a mistake. You know, I, I felt differently about Brandon Hagel, you know, even though he was also a younger player with a ton of skill, um, you know, he could have been a guy that projected deep uh, into, you know, kind of the Blackhawks future, but I thought the return really kind of justified moving Hagel. I don't feel the same with the Brinkett. I feel like his style of play, which was actually kind of a knock of his when he came out, that's kind of why he fell to the second round to the Blackhawks was that they, they wondered if he was going to be able to be durable and hang up for an 82 game season. And he's proven to be that. And then some, uh, and I think he fits in really well well with where the Blackhawks are trying to go uh, you know their general manager Kyle Davidson when when he's asked you know what kind of players are you looking for he's also under the mindset of well, we want skill we want speed we want guys that are effective with the puck on their stick as much as anything else and of course the defensive side you know is, is important but with Debrinket the offensive upside is just too much I think it would be a big mistake to see Debrinket get traded away even if it was an incredibly high return you know a high first round pick and a prospect I think Debrinket is such like a, a lock you know what you're getting you've seen him produce in the NHL and uh, I don't even necessarily think like he's been you know had the fortunate ability to play with Patrick Kane but I think Debrinket could be a producer on his own even if the Hawks you know move on from Kane after this year or whatever they decide to do there I think Debrinket's too good to move and I think it would be a mistake if they were to move him even though it has been a high rumor lately I definitely agree and you have to think like it feels like it would if anything like alienate Patrick Kane Jonathan Taze anybody else that's as much as they already have right that's what I'm saying like if you want to kill like the the legacy will never die between Patrick Kane and, and Johnny Days. We know they're going to be remembered as some of the greatest Blackhawks ever. There's not really a question there. But the end of their career, you don't want to end a career with a, a, a sour taste in your mouth, I guess would be the, the way to put it. I feel like if anything, regardless of the return, even if they got a stellar return, you cannot do this to the guys that have brought you here. You cannot do this to the guys that have made you the dynasty that you had. They've brought you to the pinnacle of the sport as a Blackhawks fan. Like these are two guys that you have grown up on and will forever idolize as some of the greatest Chicago athletes in the history of Chicago sports. 
I feel like, man, like it's gotta be such a tough job, especially given the fact that like we got brand new management. We're talking about guys that have not been here for a long time, do not have the the repoir. Like, how do you go talk to Patrick Kane and be like, yeah, we're trading the Brinton? That's gotta be such a difficult decision. Whether or not it's the right decision, like that's that's the tough part of the job right there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like maybe it doesn't necessarily hurt to see what you could get back because like I said, I was surprised at the Brandon Hagel return at the deadline. You know, I think there were certain stipulations where his cap hit was, a, you know, an impact and he had an extra year of control and whatnot. But the return there, I was like blown away with, with what they were able to get. So I, I don't think it hurts, especially around the draft time. Sometimes GMs get really antsy and they want to make a big play. Like, you know, the New Jersey Devils are really in the news for they want to add NHL talent. They've got a weakness on the on the wing. You know, if they could get a guy like to bring it, I mean, if they're willing to you know sell their franchise give you a second overall pick their next year first a solid prospect like ty smith alex holtz like if they just give you a complete package like sure you'll you'll listen and and, and can consider it but i don't i don't think at the end of the day it, that it would be a smart move to move to bring it because i think he can be a guy that when the blackhawks do kind of get out of this dark you know tunnel they've been in the last couple of years and especially last year i i think that like was kind of like rock bottom at least i hope I think the can be that guy that can, you know, kind of help bring him out of that and, and be a really, really solid contributor on the first or second line, no less, uh, you know, once they're able to, you know, be hopefully a, a regular playoff team in the next, you know, five or so years again. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think we'll end up looking at this again next week. I'm assuming that Alex Brinkett is not traded at the draft. He won't be traded at all in the offseason. But what do I know? I have no sources. I am not special. So if it does happen after the draft, uh, obviously sorry it's going to be a little bit longer yeah. for you to to realize the the gains from that but um i think we can move off of the nhl talk obviously the draft and i'm sure we're going to have trades because it feels like this has been the most uh clustered like dysfunctional off season kevin weeks is tweeting to keep an eye on everything constantly i'm getting notifications from elliot friedman it's it's been bonkers but we can move over to what some people are calling the death of college football and I don't know if I'm going to call it a death necessarily because I do feel like conferences probably don't matter, but USC and UCLA have decided to pretty much take away any type of juice the Pac-12 may have had uh, moving to the Big Ten, I believe in 2024. I, I think that is the, yep. um, the correct year there. And first off, before we get on to what seems to be a domino effect, because uh, there's been rumors that Miami is going to end up leaving the ACC and we're going to have a couple of super conferences. Um, First off, does it make any sense at all to you in terms of the geographic ramifications of the, the Big Ten going from being a, a kind of centralized, like, you know, middle of the country, a little bit eastern to everywhere? The Big Ten is everywhere and it doesn't you can't stop it. now. It's, it's just happening. Yeah, the landscape of, of college athletics is completely flipped in the last like three years. Like it's insane. Like, you know, you hear all these news about like the transfer portal and, you know, teams changing conferences and now with, you know, NIL being a big deal. Like it's crazy how college athletics is just completely like taking a complete 180 in, in the last you know few years. But I mean, yeah, from like a Big Ten standpoint in the same conference, you have Rutgers and USC, like we're talking New Jersey and LA just for an in-conference opponent. Like it's just 
just insane how uh, how the Big Ten has said, you know what, geographic, it doesn't matter. We just want your money. And those schools have good football programs, so we're going to make a lot of it. So that's obviously the rationale and, and reason why, because then you can throw the Big Ten network on in the L.A. area, and now you get all this more TV <laughs> revenue. So that's obviously the, the the backing in terms of why a decision like this was made. So, I mean, it's it's pretty crazy how, how these things are happening. You know, uh, I, I think, like, honestly, it, it surprised me a little bit because I thought if we were going to see some kind of like seismic shift like this, it would be more towards the idea of like a, a Notre Dame, for example, where they go independent and they're like, we're going to pick our own schedule. Like we don't, we don't need no conference, but the conferences like the big 10, for example, they have the money where they're like, Nope, we're going to, we're going to outbid you guys. We're, we're going to make sure that it, it gets done. So it's crazy how this thing has changed. And uh, you know, maybe it's a little sad for a, for a game like the Rose bowl, which was always classically like a, a big tw- big 10 versus pac 12 matchup. You know, a couple of years ago, we had that crazy game between, USC and Penn State now they're going to be in the same conference so uh, it'll be it'll be wild to see how everything you know ends up playing out in the next couple of years obviously this comes after uh, we find out that Oklahoma and Texas are going to be joining the SEC so uh, a lot of things are, are changing right in front of our eyes and it was definitely a big surprise to me to, to see it happen but I, I think the money kind of speaks for itself uh, you know the impact of football and, and the impact of TV uh, is, is really why this kind of move happened. If we get to the point where we have other teams moving, so like we've had Washington and Stanford, you know, consider moves elsewhere. And then, as I said before, um, the Miami, Clemson, Florida states of the world are all probably sitting here like, hey, we, we want some revenue money. We, we want a little bit piece of the pie there. Um, are we ever going to get to the point? Do you think in the next couple of years, we're going to have just like a couple of super conferences and then everybody else pretty much doesn't matter? Like it seems to be the trend is, is almost a hundred percent going that way. Yeah, I agree. Cause like we already had like the quote unquote power five, but now it's even shrinking down. Like we, you think of like how the PAC 12 and the big 12 just lost two of their biggest, you know, revenue teams, uh, you know, this year alone. So the SEC, the big 10, they make big moves. You have to wonder, does the ACC, you know, try to, you know, expand a little bit. Do they grab some of the, you know, group of five teams uh, that are in like the American conference, for example, I even saw reports that the big 12 itself was trying to take some of the PAC 12 teams, uh, schools like Oregon, and Washington, they were interested in, in them adding the Big 12. So maybe this power five that we're used to just bumps down to the, the power three or, or the power four um, if, if the Big 12 and ACC stand out and the, uh, the Pac-12 falters or, or some kind of combination of that. So yeah, college athletics is uh, is definitely changing and uh, it's, it's going to be weird. Like it, it's wild how how everything is just, you know, kind of changed like that. This, this news totally shocked me without a doubt. You know, I just want to say I'm worried for Bill Walton. Because Bill Walton yeah. is such a massive Pac fan, and, and Pac after dark, it, it just it wouldn't be the same without him. I'm sure he's sitting there, very very sad right now. Yeah. I'm sure Especially that he's mourning UCLA. <laughs> he's mourning the death of UCLA and USC in the Pac, <laughs> and it's it's never going to be the same. I think college sports, uh, the landscape of college sports, especially with NIL, with all the money that's being infused in uh, recruiting and just in general, it's. We're seeing an entirely different professional collegiate sports, which just sounds so bizarre and off. But at this point, like, what do you even say about like the money hungry college has been bad forever. College sports have been some of the the more taking advantage of players uh, mentality for many years. And I mean, they're still trying to finesse ways around it, but like, I don't, it, it kind of strikes me as this is not a good thing. This is a bad thing, if anything, because less schools are relevant. 
There's only two or three conferences that'll matter when it comes to playoff time. We're going to see some ramifications that I don't think anybody's really prepared for. The money is obviously a, a, an ideal situation for a lot of these schools and a lot of these uh, organizations, but man, it seems like a bad thing. Does it not? Yeah. I, I think that like, there's just a lot in college athletics. Like it's not monitored. Like there's no, you know, NCAA commissioner. It's, it's the conferences are out for themselves. So, you know, the big 12, the big 10 commissioner, Kevin Warren's like, up, oh, I'm going for it. I'm, I'm going to see how I can maximize money, which obviously that's part of his job. So, you know, credit to him in, in one regard, but also, you know, everything's just kind of, you know, free for all up for grabs. It's been, uh, it's been crazy how, uh, you know, it's been, you know, I, I think you could deem it even out of control um, with how things have changed, not only, from the conference realignment standpoint, but the transfers and, and the name, image, and likeness, I feel like those all are, you know, kind of correlated in, in how things have changed recently. Yeah, I'm sure that this is not the last time we'll talk about realignment and, and conference changes, yeah. given uh, maybe even next week, honestly. Like, it feels like this is how uh, collegiate sports has moved. And with the recruiting process and, and transfer portal and all that, like, there's always news in college sports, which is crazy because I feel like it used to be like, yeah, you know, we have a dead period, like everybody's getting ready for, for camp or whatever. But now it's just it's totally total fuckery that it's in every sense of the word. Um, yeah. I guess we can move on from NCAA to the NFL, the professional side of things, even though they're both professional and talk about, I think, it, it, the trade that has been rumored for like it's been like months now. Like we knew there was something happening or at least they were trying in terms of Baker Mayfield um, with the Browns. It didn't seem like it was going to work out after the Sean Watson, Carolina basically gets him for nothing. I would say essentially nothing to have a, a starting level quarterback. Obviously the Carolina Panthers, they really had issues figuring out the quarterback. This is the second time in a couple of years that they've decided, Hey, we're going to go out there and try to figure out the whole uh, quarterback situation with a guy that hasn't worked out in his first team. The second time or the first time it didn't really work. Sam Darnold was pretty, pretty, pretty brutal last year. I don't think, and I, I'd like to say, you know, I hope Sam Darnold turns into an NFL quarterback at some point. I really, I'm rooting for him, but now Baker Mayfield has seemingly hopped him in, in the depth chart. It looks like he's going to be the starting quarterback for the Carolina Panthers next year. They get him for a conditional fifth. It turns into a fourth. If he plays games, what do you think? Like, this has got to be something that, it felt like at this point there was no possibility of this happening because it's been months and nothing has happened. And now all of a sudden the Browns are not only paying his contract for the most part, but they decided, Hey, you know, we don't even want to return for him. We're just going to send him and see what he does. Yeah. It, all of it is so strange. I think like the reason it kind of took so long is we were still just trying to figure out what's going on with Deshaun Watson. Like, is the NFL going to allow him to play? And I guess this means he is because I don't know why the Browns would have, would have done something like this. Uh, you know, if, if they weren't sold that, that they would have confidence in Watson being able to play this year, but uh, Mayfield clearly wanted out, you know, maybe he, he would have refused to play even if Watson can't. So maybe those things aren't necessarily hundred percent correlated, but at least that's my assumption that, that it took so long for the Browns to do this just because they were waiting to see how Watson's side of things would, would play out. But I was even surprised that Carolina was the team that ended up pulling the trigger on it because I, in my head, I was always thinking Seattle made a lot more sense. Yeah. They went out and they got Drew Locke, uh, you know, this year when they, when they traded away Russell Wilson, but I, you know, obviously I think Baker Mayfield's a, an upgrade on Drew Locke. So I, I was surprised that it was Carolina because, you know, like you said, they already have Sam Darnold. They drafted Matt Corral in the third round this year. And I kind of thought, okay, like you have Darnold Corral, you can start with Darnold. And, you know, maybe if he has kind of similar fate as last year, you have a, you know, a backup who has, you know, an ability and, and maybe some future where uh, I mean, you could, you could run with it a little bit, but you know, with Mayfield there now as well, it's probably going to be pretty tough for Corral to, to, 
see any action this year outside of maybe some like red zone wildcat, you know, fun packages or whatnot using his running abilities. So, uh, you know, Mayfield's going to go there. He's a free agent at the end of this year. You know, his, his fifth year option was picked up uh, and, and would have been exercised this year. And it will be now in Carolina, but as is the case for Sam Darnold, they were both picked in the 2018 draft, you know, top three, neither of them picked by Carolina. So Carolina trades for two top three picked quarterbacks, like hundred percent. This has to be the first time anything like this has happened. It's just super strange. Uh, you know, from, from Carolina standpoint, I'm, I'm still kind of curious as to what like their kind of long-term plan is like, are they sold that Mayfield will be the guy because uh, then it even kind of seems like surprising. Like what would they do with Corral? You know, a third round pick, you're thinking that could be an impact guy, you know, for sure within two years. So, uh, you know, maybe they, they let both Mayfield and Darnold walk and, and they give Corral an opportunity to play. So I'm really because it just kind of struck me as surprising. You know, the return was really light. So it's not like Carolina is committing a ton. Uh, as you said, they're, they're not paying him a ton. They're, they're paying him less than five million in his cap. It Darnold's cap. It is about 18 million. So they are on the books for that. They're, they're going to pay Sam Darnold by far the most of the three quarterbacks on their uh, roster. But I was surprised by it overall. Um, but I, I think from a, from a Browns perspective, you know, that they, they weren't going to keep Mayfield. Well, you know, that relationship was kind of tarnished when they went out and got Watson, but I was mostly just surprised that it was Carolina that ended up being the team that went out and got him. Yeah. And it is interesting just to consider, like, we've never seen a more disappointing draft in terms of like a, a top three, I would say, even with Saquon Barkley, who looks like the best of the bunch, even though he doesn't stay healthy and doesn't play, which is not, not a, a good sign for the quarterbacks, but I don't know. You have to like kind of root for Baker Mayfield, in my opinion. I know a lot of people do not like Baker Mayfield. They think that he is a bum. They think that he is a little bit too flashy for his own good because he's not that talented when he gets on the field. But I am all in. I am here for week one. Browns Panthers. That is exciting to me. I hope for for Sam Darnold's sake and Baker Mayfield's sake that they figure out who the quarterback's gonna be. I hope it's Baker Mayfield and I hope he toasts them week one. Because that would just be it looks like it'll be Baker Mayfield with Jacoby Brissett, which is not as fun. If it was Baker Mayfield with Deshaun Watson, I'd be like, yeah, that's, that's it. But regardless, you kind of have to root for Baker Mayfield, right? Like he hasn't necessarily done anything to, to alienate people. Like he's just trying his best. Yeah. I don't, I, I think like, Baker maybe has been unfairly slandered. Like, yeah, I, I think it's fair to criticize Baker Mayfield's play at the end of last year. Oh, of it course. It wasn't great, but I, I still think he's a, he's a, you know, starting NFL quarterback. Like, you know, he, he's not horrible. Like I, I think some people need to relax a little bit and he's just 27 years old. Like he could still be in, in the NFL for another decade. And I'm not necessarily stunned, even if he's just hanging around as a backup those last couple of years, for example. So I think Mayfield still has, has some ability and, you know, he's always kind of been the guy. He's got that chip on his shoulder. I, I feel like when he kind of gets that opportunity, opportunity you know if he can kind of seize the reins he's the the week one starter for Carolina who knows maybe he goes out there starts to make some plays you know a team like Carolina they've got Christian McCaffrey that'll help him behind him DJ Moore I think is a solid receiver they got as well so you know maybe not impossible I, I thought Carolina was going to be a lot better last year and they totally were anything but that but I think with Mayfield there you know maybe they, they kind of you know have some people turning their heads and acting a little surprised with uh you know how, how effective Mayfield is maybe that's me being an optimist and, and rooting for Mayfield a little bit but I think he was maybe a little bit unfairly criticized and I still think he has some solid football ahead of him yeah I think that's fair you know obviously we appreciate Sam for the question and giving us a, a segment to discuss um just a good guy Sam so if Sam's listening we appreciate you thank you for uh leading us into our questions I think we can go further into our questions uh to the man the myth the legend himself Eric 18 Utah Eric Jensen he sent me seven questions over text we're not gonna do all seven 
Uh, unfortunate for Eric, you know, we just don't have the time for that, Eric. You, you got you to gotta figure it out. But what we do have time for is to talk about RK last year. We, before the podcast, you were talking about how you were excited that you did well on this question last year. And we have it presented to us yet again. Dark horse college football sleepers as college football approaches. Do you have anybody that's really like screaming to you right now? What are you thinking? Yeah, so so you're gonna like this one, Donnie. I last year my my philosophy on this was all right. Let me get a guy who's a returning quarterback who was you know in a in a similar system as last year. I liked what I saw from the quarterback, and you know hope the rest of the team around him kind of figures it out. And I gave like I think I gave one team in every conference, and the one I hit big on was Ole Miss. Obviously, Matt Corral came back. We just talked about him with Carolina. He had a good year. Ole Miss was pretty solid. You know, one of the best years they've had with Lane Kiffin. Uh, so I liked what I saw from Ole Miss last year. This year, I'm going, Donnie, I'm going with your team. I'm going with the U. I'm going with uh, with Tyler Van Dyke this year. I, I think that he was kind of maybe a little under the radar. He definitely has some fans out there and, and people that are uh, Tyler Van Dyke fans. But I think he could be pretty solid. I think the ACC, I kind of look at that conference as a little bit more open, for example, uh, at least when we're talking about college football sleepers like Ohio State, you know, they're bringing back, you know, they're like all the, like, they, they lost to Olave and, and they lost Garrett Wilson. But I mean, Ohio State's still going to be good. Alabama, they got Bryce Young coming back. They're going to be good. It's going to be tough to make a lot of noise against those teams. So I'm looking at the ACC, you know, Clemson, their offense was really bad last year. I know still had the really good defense, but I look at the ACC as a little bit more open than it's been maybe in uh, the last couple. So I think that Miami could kind of fly under the radar and, and be one of those college football sleepers this year, especially if Van Dyke can continue off of a really good freshman year last year. I definitely agree. I think that's perfect analysis, and I'm very excited to hear you say that. I do think the ACC is going to be interesting this year. Every time I look at the Heisman odds, there's like five ACC quarterbacks involved, which doesn't make any sense because let's just let's just get this out of the way. ACC quarterbacks bad, usually <laughs> usually pretty poor, uh, especially once they get out of college. But I think it's a little bit different. Clemson, you know, DJ, we're thinking uh, he he's bad last bad. year. Yeah, he's looked pretty bad. However, he's very high up on the Heisman odds, which is crazy to me because obviously, you know, they could nobody win. Sleeps, nobody help. sleeps on Clemson. Um, and then, you know, the man, the myth, legend, Keith Slovis, he's still trying to, you see, he's still kicking around. It's going to be interesting. I think the ACC is as open as it has been. And obviously, Miami's recruiting. Um, it, it's very much picked up in the last couple of months with uh, coaching hires. Obviously, they're, they're kind of feeling it. Uh, transfers will be ideal. And you know, we're putting out a, a solid roster. You know, with Miami, you're going to get the skill players. You're going to have the running backs. You're going to have the wide receivers. You're going to have DBs. It's going to be interesting to see how the line holds up. The line has been an issue the last couple of years. And as they're getting older, it hasn't really seemed to get any better. So uh, we're, we're really hoping that throwing uh, coaches in there that are known specifically for being able to develop these linemen, um, hopefully that is a positive step in the right direction. I just appreciate you bringing up Miami football in a positive manner because it's, it's mostly negative for the most part, like the last decade or two decades, it's not been great. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's for sure. And uh, you know, it is a little bit of risk. I think Ole Miss was as well. Like Ole Miss was kind of always like, they were always kind of the team getting the jabs. Like you saw the potential there and then they finally broke through. So yeah, we'll see. Like you said, I, I totally agree with you in that it's going to come down to the line of scrimmage. You know, if the offensive line can, can protect and the D line can generate some pressure, Miami could certainly be there among the best in the ACC. But if it's been like it's been in years past, it, it could be kind of a, a status quo year for them, but I'm definitely encouraged. I think Van Dyke can, can kind of build on some of that hype and uh, you know, lead Miami to a, to a solid season this year yeah it's exciting especially because if Miami has a good year that means they'll end up in the SEC and that's just really that's a great thought you know Alabama on the schedule every year is just something that I've really you know it's something that you want on your schedule you want to lose to Alabama by 40 every year it's it just it builds character <laughs> um 
Eric has four more questions, including one about what has been the interesting topic in sports in general, if you are just an ESPN casual. Uh, Kevin Durant, you know, Kyrie Irving resigns. He says, I'm not leaving my guy, Kevin Durant. That can't happen. But your guy, Kevin Durant, is leaving you. Unfortunately, that is the case. Kyrie Irving looks like he's going to be moving too. But Kevin Durant has requested a trade. Um, It's very hard to figure out who actually has a chance. Like what we're talking the Raptors are, are, are out here recruiting him. The Phoenix Suns are currently the favorite um, among other teams. Do you see, first off, do you think that Kevin Durant's going to get like the super, the best return ever? Because that seems to be like the the kind of consensus here is like, this is going to be an uncharted trade in terms of NBA history. This is going to be very bizarre. It's already bizarre. Like Kevin Durant requesting a trade after Kyrie Irving signed and says, hey, I'm sticking around. It's, it's just been weird, like, but in, in general, Kevin Durant, do you think the trade's going to be ridiculous? And where do you think he ends up? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think it could be ridiculous. And also, I, I think it's not, I know you said he requested a trade, not necessarily impossible. He remains with the Nets. I think I saw a report from Wode that, you know, not impossible that he stays with the Nets. I do think he does end up getting moved. You mentioned Phoenix. That, that could certainly be a potential, you know, team. They have a lot of depth. They have a lot of guys they could, you know, send back in kind of a big return. I'm hoping for the Miami Heat. I hope that he ends up going to Miami and Miami says, take whatever you want, but let us keep Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler and we'll just have our big three and then we'll figure out our depth over the you know course of the midseason and you know the east you know certainly still not as good as the west you're, you you got to compete with you know boston and milwaukee as formidable teams for sure but i think if you have that big three with jimmy butler kevin durant bam Adebayo, i think miami becomes the immediate favorite in the eastern conference and even title contenders uh you know if they could get there certainly not easy to you know go up against the golden state warriors for example but i'm hoping that he ends up going to miami you know miami could end up packaging something back along with tyler hero and uh, a lot of the other you know, kind of depth guys that they've had. I, I thought they had a really solid roster, but I think that would be a lot of fun. I would love to see Duran end up uh, going down to, to South Beach and, and joining the Miami Heat. Okay, but hear me out. If he ends up on the Suns, then we have a conference final of, I mean, you would assume Suns Warriors, but like LeBron versus KD in the playoffs would be yeah. interesting. You know, maybe I want him to end up in the Western Conference. Maybe I want him to end up with the Suns. I want him out there with Chris Paul. Like, that just sounds like it could be, although, you know, Chris Paul definitely, uh, definitely, you know, frauds when it, when it matters, unfortunately, <laughs> I think that would be just, just unbelievable, like storyline. The playoffs would be nuts because of all the superstars. Like we're yeah. even talking about the Cl- the Clippers are still sitting there. Like, yeah, we've got, we've got, they got Paul George, they got Kawhi Leonard. They just got John yeah. Wall. Like we're talking about so many good teams. The Western conference playoffs would be absolutely bonkers oh. if Katie ended up in the West. Yeah, well, I mean, even the depth, too. Like, we saw Dallas have a good run this year with Doncic. Yeah, they just lost Jalen Brunson, but, I mean, he's still a, a legit superstar. We saw the Memphis Grizzlies have an incredible regular season and even battled with Golden State more than I think some people uh, kind of expected. So they're kind of a, another interesting team in the West. I think from, like, a fan perspective, I'd love it. I would love to see just that brawl over there in the West and say, all right, Western Conference playoffs, let's figure it out. But from a Kevin Durant <laughs> perspective, I think staying in the East makes just way more sense. Like, you just have a much more clear path to get get to the finals not easy getting through Giannis and, and getting through Boston as I said uh you know even Philadelphia they can battle here and there with Joel Embiid you know not an easy matchup or guy to go up against but I think for if I was Kevin Durant I would want to end up going down to Miami and uh you know teaming up with Butler and Adebayo I, I think that would be a really really good trio I think those three kind of would mesh play styles really well even more so than say going to Phoenix where you know Devin Booker you know I, I think he obviously is a great scorer in himself but I'm not sure if his play styles would mesh uh 
quite as well as a guy like Jimmy Butler, for example, who's more known for his incredible defense. And I think the well-rounded game would, would be a lot of fun, especially with a guy like Eric Spolstra as the coach. So that's where I'm, I'm selfishly hoping that, uh, that KD stays in the East and, and goes to Miami. But yeah, from like a fan perspective, the Western Conference playoffs would be an absolute, you know, must-see TV if, if Durant ended up going to a, a team like Phoenix. I definitely agree. That's good analysis. I'm happy with what I heard out of you there. Maybe I'm rooting for him to go to Miami too. Like at this point, that you, you just gave me a very impassioned response. I appreciate that. Um, before we get into the hockey questions that we have from Eric and Josh, Eric just wants you to name an MLS team. Can you give me one MLS team? Yeah, I, I, this is like unnecessary slander, okay? If it was like it's European rude. soccer, I, I don't know. I'm not claiming to know much about European soccer, okay? But like MLS, like Chicago Fire, come on. Like I grew up in Chicago, like NYCFC, New York City Red Bulls, Columbus Crew, you know, uh, Houston Dynamo, FC Dallas. Like, uh, uh, that, there you go. I just, I just rattled off a few for you, Eric. So yeah, I don't need the, the MLS slander. Okay. I'm an American. I'm, I'm familiar with sports organizations in this country, but if you slandered me over European soccer valid, that's fine. Go ahead. I'm not going to pretend to know what I'm talking about, but I can name MLS teams. So uh, unnecessary slander. I'm calling you out for it, Eric. Not, not appreciated. You know, you could slander Eric about any of the actual leagues because, you know, Eric just he comes with takes. He just he just told us the Denver Broncos are going to be in the Kansas City. Chiefs. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how that one works. Good luck. Uh, Eric's got two hockey questions for you. First off, you know, he's he's not a week off of watching his avalanche win the Stanley Cup. And now he's asking what they should do with, with their goaltending position just for some uh, background information for those non hockey inclined fans that decide to listen. Uh, their Stanley Cup winning goaltender Darcy Kemper is headed to unrestricted free agency unless something ends up happening here. Um, there were reports today that they were supposed to meet and then the meeting, apparently nothing happened. There was no progress made. Uh, you know, as much as you'd like to see uh, Darcy Kemper, you know, get back with the Colorado Avalanche and, and let them have a consistent goaltender. It, it might be a little unlikely at this point. If you're, if you're the abs, you sit in the front office, what are you doing to either, you know, address that by keeping him or are you going to free agency to pick somebody else up within the house? What are you thinking? Yeah, I think, uh, I think resetting Kemper is definitely an option. I think he was, you know, well worthy of, uh, you know, getting another opportunity to come back. I, you know, I think the, the big fish in, in kind of the goaltending market this year is going to be Marc-Andre Fleury. I don't know if they go that route because I think that a lot of the cap that they're going to want to spend this offseason is either going to be to a guy like Nazem Kadri or re-signing a lot of their depth pieces that they have as well. So I don't think they end up spending huge in, in terms of their goaltending this offseason. And they also have, still have Pavel Francois coming back next year uh, for the next two years too. So uh, I think they nearly just need to kind of get like a, a solid goaltending tandem. So uh, even if they don't necessarily, you know, re-sign Kemper, there, there's guys out there that could go after like, say a guy like Martin Jones that hasn't been necessarily great, but is a veteran that they could go after or Jack Campbell, I think is going to get a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, cap it than they may be willing to spend. But uh, I, I think overall, I, I think they should try to first and foremost, go after re-signing Darcy Kemper. Uh, and if that doesn't necessarily work out, they go for, you know, another one of those options that are, uh, you know, kind of the better in UFA routes um, that they can kind of look towards having more of like that tandem approach going into next year, because I think they, their team this year, they showed that like, it wasn't necessarily goaltending. That is what they necessarily needed, which is surprising. I think that like, was like everything everyone was concerned about. They were like, I don't know the goaltending. No, but their team was just so good up and down the entire forward core, the entire D four was just so good that they clearly had the foundation. So I think if they do end up spending, you know, this off season, it would either be for Kadri or it would be to keep a lot of their you know kind of depth pieces like a guy like Andre Burakovsky for example uh, I think would be would make a lot more sense to you know pay him the money than you know going out and spending big on on flurry for example 
Yeah, I think so. My perspective on this is basically I think Darcy Kemper leaves because the market will be big for him. Obviously, we've seen 10 to 12 teams be like, yeah, we're going to need a goaltender. And let's just be honest, Darcy Kemper, good goaltender, probably not worth the money he's going to get. I think you'd say the same about Vili Huso. You're going to definitely say the same about Jack Campbell. I don't think uh, we're going to see reasonable contracts out of any of them. And, you know, Flurry would be interesting too. I think what they would benefit from is, you know, the goaltending didn't really matter. They had a 900 goaltender for the majority of the playoffs. As you said, no team wins with a 900 goaltender unless they are just either offensively dominant, which the Avalanche are as offensively dominant as we've seen in terms of a playoff team. They just won all but three, four games in the playoffs, um, which is interesting. I think what ends up happening is nothing. I think they'll end up calling up uh, somebody from uh, within the organization to be a backup. I think Pavel will end up playing 50 games, 55 games, not a real issue there. The only thing would be health concerns, but I think the goalie market is going to be a little bit too volatile for Colorado to be able to take advantage of, which is unfortunate for them, given the fact that, you know, they're probably pretty primed for a Stanley cup repeat. If anybody's primed to win next year, I think Colorado will be the number one favorite. Um, Kemper's got to go. In my opinion, Kemper will have to leave just solely because he can get a five or six year deal at five or six million per year. Uh, get He's going to get paid like a Yusei Saros or, or like Igor Shesterkin's being paid right now, which is bonkers because he's not that good in comparison to them. I'm sure Eric will love to hear me say they need to get rid of Darcy Kemper or let him walk because Eric trashed Darcy Kemper for the entire playoffs, even though they just won the Stanley Cup. But my thought is, Colorado has been doing this for a while. I think the Avalanche are one of those teams that have been able to, you know, prepare themselves into the future. I know for a fact that Colorado has good goaltending within the organization. A guy like Justice Anunen, who is drafted uh, four years ago at this point, very high, a third rounder, a guy that can step right in as a backup, hopefully. Uh, We're talking about a guy who played very well in the playoffs last year for the AHL team. Uh, Somebody that I've seen mentioned time and time again at 925 in the playoffs in the AHL last year. So you have to think like, if you can cheap out on the goaltending and keep guys like Kadri and keep some of the other depth guys on your team, why wouldn't you, right? If you have to address the goaltending issue, you go to the off season or you go to the trade deadline and we're thinking, oh, somebody's expiring. Uh, if you can hold on the guys like Lekin and Burakovsky and Kadri instead of keeping a goaltender and kind of cheaping out, uh, Pavel is making two mil this year. You can pretty much, you can function with a two mil goalie if he's giving you nine, 10, nine, 15 save percentage. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that if they do go kind of that tandem route, that's why they could go after, you know, one of those veteran cheaper options, you know, a guy who's just kind of been around, he can fill a role, he can, you know, hop in net behind an incredible team for, you know, 25, 30 games and, and we can kind of get by. If it does become a big issue, then maybe they go after trading for a goalie around deadline time. But, you know, that was kind of what we thought going into last year. And obviously it worked out. So I think if I were, you know, in those shoes with Colorado, I'd look to, you know, first and foremost, see if we can resign Kadri. If that price is too high, let's keep a lot of those depth guys. You know, like I said, Burakovsky, Manson, you know, Darren Helm was really good for them. They can just keep a plethora of those guys. Let's bring as much back as we can, uh, more so than, than kind of spending on goalies. So, yeah, I, I think we're kind of under the similar mindset there. Definitely fair enough. Eric's final question. He wants three teams that I should watch or anybody should watch in the NFL, NHL offseason. First off, Eric, you need to understand we are a tier podcast, so we're going to give you the top tier of teams <laughs> that we think that we should uh, be looking at uh, in the offseason. I'm going to start off. Normally, I would kick this over to Ryan, but I am so intrigued by what ends up happening in Toronto. So we're talking about the Maple Leafs have no cap. There's The flexibility is zero. 
they have built themselves into a situation where they're paying four guys $40 million a year. And then on the defensive end, they've got Morgan Riley, Jake Muzz, and TJ Brody. All these guys are just 20 mil combined nearly. I think they're at 18 mil combined for the three. And then we're talking about a net. Jack Campbell will probably be leaving. It seems like every indication has been, we don't have any cap for him. So at, at that point, if you're a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, you have to be very nervous going into the next offseason with Peter Morazic as your starting goaltender. Like, obviously, it will not be the case. They will address it with somebody, but the Leafs are going to have to make significant moves. I've seen them talk about, like, Jake Muzzin's a guy that's got to go. They have other issues to deal with. Like, we're talking about Ian McKay is gone. Pierre Engvall, man, up leaving. Andre Kasha, 26. Engvall, 26. RFAs, guys that you can't really hold on to. Rasmus Sandin, there was a rumor today that said he wants more money than they're willing to offer him. And he's an RFA. So does that mean he gets offer sheeted or traded? Like there's so much that could go on and it's all a, a cataclysm of what's happened the last couple of years. It's all a culmination of what we've seen with obviously the John Tavares signing and then extending Marner, Matthews, Nylander. They are so deep in the cap fuckery. They're so deep in cap hell right now that they don't have space for a goalie without completely uprooting some of the key parts of their team. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Like, especially considering the lack of playoff success, like where does Toronto kind of go from here? Like, what are, what are they trying to do? Like, do they end up making that big decision where one of the big four moves or um, do they just kind of, you know, keep going as is, as they've kind of been doing lately. So, and especially like, uh, you know, that's a good example of a team with a GM that I, you know, have a lot of respect for with Kyle Dubas. So, you know, that he's been kind of mulling over a lot of these decisions. So he's always kind of got my attention when, uh, when the Leafs make moves for sure. Give me your top team outside of the Toronto Maple Leafs. What do you got? Yeah, top team for me. I'm actually going uh, flip side, a team that's kind of like coming up more so than than the Leafs who are, are kind of, you know, been near the top, uh, at least in terms of playoff spots. I'm going with the Detroit Red Wings. Detroit Red Wings, still a team for me. They have the second most cap space in the entire NHL. Only the Anaheim Ducks have more cap space right now than the Detroit Red Wings. They have, you know, Steve Eiserman as their GM. Another guy, as I said, a lot of respect for him in terms of what he can do. Uh, you know, he had so many great years with uh, with Tampa Bay, of course, but uh, now he's with Detroit. So really interested to see how Detroit approaches this offseason. Are they a team that's ready to start spending big in free agency now that they've started to, you know, turn things over a little bit? They got a little bit closer to the playoffs last year. You know, they have maybe a little bit better goaltending situation, even though Nadelkovic was a little up and down towards parts of the seasons do they have to you know spend big on a guy like flurry to help that out that's something that i'm interested to see what they decide to do so the red wings they just have a lot of cap space a lot of options i'm kind of interested to see when they start to you know start making some big splashes with eiserman for sure i think that's fair i think my next addition to this list will be the pittsburgh penguins we don't often get to a position where we're this close to free agency and you have two of the cornerstones of your franchise the last 10, 15 years and Evgeny Malkin and Crystal Tank both unsigned. There's a lot of issues for Pittsburgh. Nobody's even talking about how Ricard Raquel is just going to hit free agency probably without even a word after they gave up a significant haul to get him. And then, you know, obviously playoffs, he got hurt, didn't play very much, and then ended up losing early. The Penguins are in such a weird position where they are going to be what I would assume is sucked in by the experience, sucked in by the legacy, sucked in by the need to keep these aging guys in Latang and Malkin, both 35, both seeking three, four year deals, which is if you know anything about the NHL, signing a guy for four years at 35 is scary. That is a, a very, very, I would say normally a negative, a negative addition to your team in most situations, especially given the fact that Chris Latang and Evgeny Malkin are both going to need big contracts. However, 
at, in my perspective here, what I would do if I was the Pittsburgh Penguins, Chris Letang would be stuck. They, they would keep him, no doubt. This is a guy that's been the cornerstone of their defense, and their defensive court is bad without him. Offensively, Evgeny Malkin should go, right? Like, Evgeny Malkin doesn't play full seasons. He doesn't play health. He doesn't say healthy, period. And when he gets to the playoffs, he's either really good or really bad, and there's no in-between. A guy like Malkin, who doesn't play, doesn't give you 80 games out of a year ever, is a guy that is expendable, in my opinion. And that is going to piss off so many Penguins fans. I don't know if you agree at all, but I think Pittsburgh is in such a weird position that, like, we don't usually see guys after 15 years with a team, like, they're just going to hit free agency and leave. Like, Evgeny Malkin just going to walk? Yeah, no, I Pittsburgh was another team for me that I, like, kind of considered picking for a team I had an eye on. Uh, not only just from, like, the, the Malkin side, as you mentioned, but also new GM, Ron Hextall there. It's no longer Jim Rutherford. They, they obviously made that change. So, you know, you, you wonder if they kind of, you know, opt to go with a little bit different direction in, in terms of some of the decision-making that they've done in years past. So I can definitely see that uh, with, with Pittsburgh. Latang as well is a, is a free agent. So a lot of different uh, big pieces for, for Pittsburgh. Evan Rodriguez had a good year. He's a free agent. So there's just a lot of big decisions for them uh, upcoming this offseason for sure. All right. You know, he asked for three. Let's give him four just to make it fair to a piece. Who do you have? What's the last team you're thinking? Yeah, I'm going to go with the Calgary Flames on this one. Uh, another team that just has a lot of, you know, big time pending free agents and a team that had a lot of success last year, but it didn't translate to much postseason success. You know, obviously McDavid kind of ran into him and, and took him down. Uh, you know, we saw Markstrom really kind of struggle in the playoffs, but he's still signed for four more years at six million. So uh, that's obviously something that, that Calgary is going to have to kind of keep an eye on. But big free agents for them this year. You got Matthew Kachuk and Andrew Mangiapane as both restricted free agents. Both guys had, you know, really good years last year especially Mangiapane I, I think that was a good time for him to kind of hit a restricted free agency year but then obviously Johnny Goudreau a, a big unrestricted free agent uh, you, I think that's always kind of been the big talk is one of the big fish in this entire free agency class not even just for Calgary but they also have uh, Nikita Zadorov, a guy who was a, a guy they traded for last year he's a unrestricted free agent Oliver Shillington another restricted free agent that they have this year so a lot of big decisions for Calgary and especially for it coming after a year where you know a little bit of disappointment and after a really good regular season to have a, a not so much success in the playoffs where they get knocked out against, uh, you know, Connor McDavid and even had a little bit closer series against Dallas than I think a lot of people expected too. interested to see how Calgary kind of responds to this offseason with, you know, so many big name, important guys uh, that they're, you know, have to end up paying if they want to keep them. Yeah, and it's really interesting, too, because usually it feels like there's some sort of sense as to whether a team is going to keep on, uh, you know, trying to pay their guys. Calgary's in a really interesting situation where Johnny Goudreau is not really telling them anything. Every report has been like, yeah, you know, Calgary's out here looking for some clarity. Johnny Goudreau hasn't said a word. He doesn't care. He's doing his own thing. This is his free agency, not, not anybody else's. It's really odd to me. Like even in Nashville, Philip Forsberg, there's been some inclination that they're trying to make it work. You would feel that Calgary would have to pay Johnny Goudreau. And, and we're at a point where we may see the geographic location part of things come back in. Obviously Calgary is very far away from the East coast. There's been a lot of rumors with the flyers and the devils, even the Islanders don't know how they manage the cap for that one. But you know, every team that lives, uh, you know, in that little area there, they have their fan base um, has been rumored to Johnny Gaudreau. And it really is weird to me. Like Johnny Gaudreau is going to, if he leaves, he'll be taking significantly less money probably because of the, the last year not being in the contract or he's going to get paid 11 and a half mil a year to make up for the, the lost year. And that is freaky money to me. That is like, 
unpayable to just about anybody like Artemi Panarin makes that type of money. And I think I would take Artemi Panarin over Johnny Gaudreau 11 out of 10 days, at least at this point with the playmaking ability and defensive addition that he brings to the table. Calgary has got to be sitting there. Like this is the most bizarre situation we've ever been in. We have two RFAs that are going to need big contracts. Manji Apane scored like 40 goals. Matthew Kachuk is clearly the, the cornerstone of their franchise. And Johnny Gaudreau is coming off a career year where he had a hundred points. So like that's got to be, if you're a Calgary Flames fan, you're 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 nervous you're you're sitting there you're scared of what's gonna happen yeah and like i said especially a team that's been kind of up and down over the last couple of years it's not like they've been a, even a playoff regular after a season in which they were outstanding in the regular season so you know there's a little bit of volatility there with calgary that they've got some some big decisions to make if they want to you know kind of continue to build on last year's success i certainly agree we have one more hockey question it's from our friend josh i hate lettuce too because i hate lettuce one was taken who are the two best prospects in the entire NHL draft that are future Columbus Blue Jackets? So I think instead of feeding in on, on giving Josh, you know, we're get, giving Josh Shane Wright and, and Logan Cooley, <laughs> we're going to give him legitimate, uh, you know, prospect guesses for where they pick. Obviously, they have a couple high picks in this draft. Um, for the first pick, who would you anticipate them looking at? What would you what would you think? Yeah, so their first pick comes at pick number six overall in the draft. I imagine they will end up staying at that spot. Uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of smoke about trades or whatnot. For, for the purposes of this, I'll, I'll say they'll stay at six. And I think best case scenario for them there is landing one of the top two defensemen in this class, either David Urasek or Simon Nemec. Both played in professional leagues last year, Urasek in Czech and Nemec in Slovakia. So those guys, you know, should be uh, a little bit more pro ready uh, to, to kind of hop into an NHL team, not necessarily next year, but I would say the year after um, as, uh, as 19 or 20 year olds, they could start to get ready to jump into the lineup with Columbus. So I think that's kind of best case scenario for them is uh, having either Eurosec or Nemec fall. I think personally, I like Nemec a little bit better, but uh, if they can grab either of them, I think that would be a really good pick overall at six. And then moving a little bit later in the draft, they pick at 12. I think that at that spot, we know their general manager, Yarmo Kekalainen, loves going after some Finnish players. One of my, my favorite Finn overall in this draft is definitely Joachim Kamel. He played in the Finnish Professional League this past year and scored 15 goals. So he was incredibly productive uh, this year in the Finnish Pro League. So a lot to like with Kamel. I think if they can land one of those defensemen there at six, that allows them to have a little bit more flexibility to get a really kind of skilled forward, uh, even if it was a winger like Kamel uh, later in the draft at 12. So I think that would kind of be best case scenario for them. I'm not sure if Kamel ends up making it all the way to 12. I think if both they are gone, he could even be a consideration for them at six. But I think overall, that would be solid picks. A couple of other guys I like that uh, could be targets at 12 if, say, Kamel is gone. I really like Liam Ogren and Jonathan Lakaramaki, a couple of uh, Swedish players in this year's draft that were really good at the U18 tournament that I watched where Sweden ended up winning the gold medal. So I think that Ogren and Lakaramaki have a ton of skill, but overall, I like Kamel more as a prospect. So if they could land him, I think those would be great fits for Columbus. You know, good analysis. I have one question for you, though. If Kamel is gone and they're looking for a Finn, Brad Lambert, obviously, he's dropped a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, even last year, I think people were saying, like, this is a guy that's going to go in the top 10, pretty totally. much guaranteed. Um, second pick, number 12, seems pretty good to me. Obviously, you know, there's rumors the Islanders would love him at 13, given the family connection and everything. But, hey, the Finns, if, if they ended up with Brad Lambert, you know, I, I'm sure that Yarmo and, and gang would be very excited. 
Yeah, to me, Bray Lambert is probably like the riskiest player in this draft because like you said, we came into this year and people were viewing Brad Lambert as a like legitimate top five player in, in the draft, even consideration to go, you know, top three, top two, right up there with Shane Wright. I, I think that's where a lot of people had Brad Lambert ranked because he had a lot of experience in international competitions as a, you know, super underager. He was like 16 years old and he was playing in, uh, you know, U20 tournaments. So uh, I think that he kind of had a lot of hype under his name just because he had some of that kind of international exposure. But didn't necessarily have the best year this year. And, and sure, he's in a finished pro league. So he's against everybody that's way older than him, but only had four points in 25 games this year. So the production didn't necessarily match. So I think next year is going to be a big year for his development uh, overall, but it was definitely a down year for Lambert. So you're, you're taking in a, a lot of inherited risk. Obviously you're, you're hoping when these guys are so young, just 18 years old, that they're just continuing to trend upward and upward and, and that the development is linear, not the case for Lambert. So there is a lot of inherited risk there uh, with going him, but uh, if, if someone decides to untap it, they, they could end up getting a, a really good player in a couple of years if, if he can continue to develop and, and work out some of those kinks. Uh, you know, it only played, you know, that was just his second year playing professionally in, uh, in Finland. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of potential there with Lambert, but I think for me, he's among the riskier players in this draft without a doubt, just because, uh, you know, last year was certainly not his best, um, you know, playing hockey overall. Fair enough. I appreciate the analysis. I have heard, uh, you know, a lot of people are very down on Brad Lambert and it makes me sad because it's like watching the highlights, at least watching the sparks, watching the, the top of his game. Like it's unreal. It, it's really, really good, but I don't know. The whole consistency thing is very strange to me. And, and obviously you don't want to take a risk at number 12. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit dangerous. Obviously if you end up getting a guy who never plays or doesn't make it to the, to the, you know, pinnacle, they get looked at as, you know, very foolish. Somebody will end up dealing with Brad Lambert probably middle middle of the first round, you'd assume, right? So yeah. I think so. And, and like I said, I mean, I just think that this draft is so deep. Like there's so many guys that you could grab at 12 that, you know, you're, you're locking in a really, really skilled forward uh, at that spot. I think the forward depth is just incredible this year in terms of skill. Like I mentioned those Swedish guys, but like Jager Furkus uh, played in the WHL this year. He's got a ton of skill. Uh, even some of the Russian guys like Gleb Treskov and Danila Yurov, I think are incredibly skilled players. You also have some Russian risk there, but I think there's just so many skilled players that a guy like Lambert could end up falling a little bit just because there's a little bit more risk with him. Than, than some of the other guys that, that could go in that spot. Fair enough. You know, thank you for analysis. Obviously, we'll be able to talk about this a little bit more next week after um, what it is sure to be the most jam-packed, you know, couple of days. Obviously, free agency opens a week from today, I believe, the 13th. So, yes, a week from today. So, we'll probably be talking about free agents the next time we talk, which is crazy because the draft is literally happening tomorrow. Um but we have one final question and I'd like you to preface it for me because, you know, family connection, we do this every time. What do you got? All right, here we go. End of the podcast, folks. We got, we got one more question. Last pod or last question designated spot for my sister, Kira, her question, very simple, Donnie. If you could only have one temperature high every day, what would it be? And she clarifies. So it doesn't necessarily get to that exact temperature every day, but it's the same year round. So you can only have one temperature high every day for the entire year. What are you getting? I had a lot of trouble figuring out what I thought the, the exact pinnacle of weather was. What, what is the, the temperature that I would most like to function at? And I think some people would probably go high on this because it is nice to have a hot day every once in a while. But I would say if I was picking one temperature high, uh, 77, somewhere around there, I feel like you're at a point where 77, it's not going to be too hot. Like you can go outside. You're not going to sweat. Sometimes you go outside. If it's a hundred degrees out, you're sweating. As soon as you leave the house, that's not good. We don't want that. But 
I also don't want to be a place where I'm like in the Arctic all the time. Like if I put it on, if I said 60, that's like air conditioning inside. I don't want, I don't want the outside to always feel like it feels inside. I think 77 is a good happy medium between like warm, but not that warm, warm enough, like good for me. Yeah, I, I agree with your analysis. I think like 90s, like we're, we're getting too hot. I'm not trying to walk outside and my forehead, my forehead just starts sweating profusely just because I'm standing outside of my house. So I agree. That's too hot. 77. That's a good spot. I feel like we could get in the eighties, but if I, if I'm picking it, I'm going with 75. So like just under you, I feel like that's just prime. Like that's just so perfect. Like 75 degrees, you're walking outside. You like notice no difference between inside and outside of, of your house or apartment or whatever. So and a nice little breeze can hang outside and go golfing, you know, do whatever you need to do. So I'm going with 75. So, so we're right in the same ballpark. So that's good. Yeah, considering we're uh, deep in the summer here, when I walk outside, it's hot and I'm sweating almost immediately. I, I've learned to not enjoy the summer very much. Unfortunately, when obviously when you're growing up, it's like, oh, you love the summer. You're not in school. Everything is right. vibing. But once you get out of school, it's like it, it's it's freaking hot out. Like I'm dying every time, especially when you get in the hot car. And then, you know, like what are you going to do? You're just going to sit yeah. in the car and sweat like it's gross. Yeah, I, I, think I agree. Because 75 uh, is like great. Yeah. Like, I totally agree. Cause like, for me, I'm like, I, I love like when there's like a little season out there, like I love being able to like throw on a hoodie and like, just going outside. Like, I can't do that in the summer. So like, I, I like a little, you know, a little change of pace, a little bit, uh, a little bit colder outside, like fall is, is pretty prime. So I agree with you summer, you know, not necessarily the best holiday. Maybe that's part of like maturing in life. You realize that summer is, is not necessarily the best. So we're getting really intellectual here, but yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I agree with you overall. I want to be able to throw on a hoodie and go outside and it's not summer 24 seven. So that's what I'm going for. Yeah, I appreciate that. I feel the same way. Um, obviously, Kira and everybody else that answers these answers. If we're wrong, if we if you think we're stupid, please let us know. <laughs> I'm always I'm always willing to hear other sides of, of the argument. At this point, RK and I are pretty much on the same wavelength, which is uh, pretty normal. I'd say I think we pretty much agree on a lot of these uh these, these social issues that are plaguing our world. Yes. Uh, <laughs> RK, you want to finish us off here? Yeah, let's do it. All right. We've made it through. This was a long podcast, but it actually felt good to have a uh, summer podcast full of news, lots of hockey offseason chatter that we're excited to get into, really kind of jam-packed NHL offseason just with the weird schedule of things with the Olympic break and the Stanley Cup finals ending late and then the draft and free agency. It's fun. It's good stuff. Olympic break. Good, good, yeah, Olympic break. <laughs> biggest joke in NHL history right there, which, which says a lot. Uh, so yeah, we thank you for all making it through lots of good conversations in this one. So you guys end of the podcast folks, of course, are the best check West is of course coming on next podcast. You know, we had a jam packed podcast, so, so we couldn't get them in here, but next podcast, of course, check West is coming on. You guys know that, but yeah, I mean, it's been a good one. Don't want to, don't want to take your guys time up too much. You, you've stuck with us. So thank you all so much for listening. And we will talk to you guys all again next week. Peace, everybody. Peace. I couldn't get better.